us to take a look at the parable of the prodigal son. Now I know it's probably the most popular parable, <clears throat> probably the most preached parable. Nothing new can be said about this parable, but I want to do it anyway. <laughs> Whenever we look at the parables, we, uh, we really do need to approach the parables with some trepidation and a great deal of humility. The parables are simple stories, very often with just one main point. But the parables, you start probing into a parable layer after layer, and you go deeper, deeper, and deeper into the meaning of that parable, deeper into the mysteries of the parable. When I was a pastor in a church in Burleson, uh, oh, it's been about 25 years ago, uh, I had my business, that's the way I, I made my living, but I also was a pastor of the church. Sunday morning we had two services, and in between those services I also taught uh, the adult Sunday school class. And when we were finishing up one of the units, I think it was probably one of the letters of Paul, I started thinking, well, what am I going to do next? And I hit on a brilliant idea, the parables. Simple stories. Uh, we know the parables. Wouldn't have to have much preparation. Be easy to teach. Boy, did I make a big mistake. I spent more time preparing for the Sunday school class on the parables, that unit on the parables, than anything I think I did. Jesus warned me about that, and I should have known because one time when he was talking to his disciples, the twelve, he said, To you twelve has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to everybody else, it's all in parables. So that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. I uh, think we should be reminded that we weren't part of the twelve there. Matthew also, in talking about the uh, parables, he, uh, he quoted one of the Psalms, Psalm 78, exactly, which says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Within the parables, there's hidden the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Hidden. It's not going to be easy. One way that we can approach the parables, I guess, is to look at the parables one character at a time put ourselves in the place of that character and look at it from his perspective. For example, in the parable of the prodigal son, it can actually seem that we ought to look at the prodigal son, since the parable is named after him. The prodigal son, the son, the youngest son, uh, it, it's easy to relate to this one. It's a fully developed character. He uh, gets his inheritance early while his father is still alive goes into a foreign country and squanders it all in sinful living. We know, we know the story. He suffers destruction almost to the end, and he finally comes to himself in repentance, and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll go to my father and tell him, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I've sinned against you and sinned against heaven. Just take me back. Just take me back as a hired servant. So that's what he does. With... Uh, his destruction came a certain amount of wisdom. 
and also repentance. And he came home and his father accepted him back, forgave him. So we have the sweetness of forgiveness and of grace. And I suspect he enjoyed the party afterwards as well. So we have a resolution to the story. Fully developed resolution is satisfying. And we learn a lot of things from it. Learn the consequences of sin, the need for repentance, the sweetness of forgiveness and grace. What about the Father? You know, the Father really is the one that the parable is about. He's the central character in the parable, although he doesn't get as much attention sometimes as the younger son. <clears throat> he uh, lets the younger son go with, uh, with his inheritance, didn't stop him from going off. When he returns, he sees the son at a distance. And the implication here is that he's probably been watching out for that son every, every day. And when he sees him, he runs to him. Now, in that culture, in that age, an old man running, an elder running, that, that would have been rather undignified. In fact, the more I think about it now, the more I get there, I think it's probably a little undignified now to watch him old man try to run. <laughs> the father embraced the son coming back. The uh, King James Bible it has a more accurate translation than some of the modern translations. He fell on his neck, is what the Greek literally says. Fell on his neck. And he kisses him. Here again, the English is a little bit deficient. Uh, what the Greek says there actually is he kissed him over and over and over again. Kissed him fervently. Now the son, in his prepared speech, he starts out. He said, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. Father doesn't even let him finish. He says, bring the robe, put it on the best robe. Bring the ring, put it on his finger. Bring shoes, put them on his feet. Kill the fat calf. We're going to have a joyful celebration. You know, I suspect that this son was forgiven as soon as he left. You know, the name of the parable is the prodigal son. That's the name we've given to it. It's not in the, in the text. You know what the word prodigal means? I didn't until a few years ago, and I finally looked it up. I mean, prodigal. The only time we use that word is in connection with this parable, prodigal son. It's almost like prodigal is the kid's first name. <laughs> I looked it up in the dictionary. My dictionary, the first, the first definition, recklessly extravagant. Yeah, yeah, it kind of describes the prodigal son. But you know who it describes even more? The father. He's recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant with his love. Recklessly extravagant with his forgiveness. Recklessly extravagant with grace. How about the older brother? He comes in from the field. He hears the party going on, the music and the dancing. Asks the slave, what in the world? What, what, what's going on? He's angry. Father comes out and wants him to come into the party, but he won't do it. I've served you all my life. 
I've always obeyed you, always worked for you. You've never given me anything. We understand, don't we? Yeah, we understand. One of my mentors a long time ago was uh, one of the great preachers of the last half of the 20th century. He also uh, taught preachers how to preach. He is a professor of homiletics at Emory University. Fred Craddock is his name. <clears throat> he got a call one morning, Sunday morning, early, and it was one of the big churches in Atlanta. And uh, they said, uh, he said, uh, our, our, our Sunday school teacher for the adult classes has come up sick at the last minute. Would you come and, and teach that Sunday school class? And Fred said, well, it, it's kind of late to be asking me to do something like that. I haven't prepared anything. Don't have time to prepare anything. Oh, you're a professor. You ought to be able to just pull something out of there. On the way, Fred was thinking what he was going to do, and he hit upon an idea that he would tell the story of the prodigal son, except with a little bit of a twist. And so he starts telling the story about the son, the prodigal son, that goes off in the far country with his inheritance and squanders it and then repents and comes back to his father. And uh, he says to his father, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Just make me your hired, slave, hired servant. And the father says, you're right. You're not worthy to be my son anymore. And the only way I'm ever going to take you back, even as a hired servant, is if you do penance a year bread and water. A year you'll wear a sackcloth. And then the older son comes in from working in the fields. And he greets his older son and he says, Son, you've been with me always. You've always done whatever I asked you to do. You've never disobeyed me. I'm going to honor you. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. Bring the sandals. Kill the fat calf. We're going to have a party and honor my oldest son who has always been responsible and been here with me. <clears throat> there was a man sitting at the back of the class who, under his breath, but where everybody in the class could hear him, said, well, that's the way it should have been. <laughs> we can identify, can't we? We can identify with the hurt. We can identify with the injustice because we have either experienced it or we have seen it. Laverne was a, was a good girl. She uh, was very close to her mother. And when she married, she stayed close. They stayed in the same vicinity. And she would frequently visit her mother, do things that she, her mother needed to be done. And then after the divorce, she uh, recognized her mother was getting on up in age and needed help, so she moved in with her mother. And she cared for her mother as she went through the process of aging, taking on more and more of the responsibilities for the care of her mother. And then there was the younger sister, Shirley. She left home as soon as she could after, after high school, got a job in another city, they hardly heard from her. Every once in a while she would call. Every once in a while if she was in the area, she, she might come by to see her mother, but usually didn't. And the mother in her older years kept talking about Shirley. You know, isn't it one Shirley got a promotion? 
Shirley's such a good daughter. Shirley, doing such wonderful things. And Laverne would listen to this day after day after day. And she would cry out within her heart, Mother, I'm right here. I'm the one that does everything for you. I'm the one that takes care of you. Pay attention to me. Love me. We know when we look at the older son that what we are seeing is the dark underbelly of sin posing as offended and wrong righteousness. We see it and we know it, but we still understand the cry deep in our heart. It's not fair. Unlike the younger son's story, there is no satisfying resolution to the older son's story. We understand the older son's charge. He doesn't forgive. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. He doesn't deserve grace after what he's done. We understand it because we know we don't deserve it either. Grace is hard. Forgiveness is hard. We know that sinner over there, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven because we know we don't deserve to be forgiven either. And God's grace is free. We know we don't deserve it. We know it's not justice. You ever receive a Christmas gift from someone and you didn't get them anything? Yeah. As a young pastor, just starting out, one of the hardest things that I had to learn was how to receive a gift. I'd be having lunch in a restaurant, and one of my parishioners would come by and snatch up the ticket. And my instant response was to, no, 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 you don't need to do that. Snatch that ticket back. No, I can buy my lunch. I, it was really hard. It was really hard when I knew that I could better afford my lunch than the person that was wanting to pay for my lunch. But I learned, you got to let them do it. It's hard, but you got to let them do it. Our Mass, our Mass testifies as to how hard it is to receive grace. In the Mass, we plead for forgiveness and mercy all the way through the Mass. The Kyrie, Lord have mercy. We don't just say it one time, we say it nine times. The general confession, have mercy upon us. Forgive us all that is past. The Agnus Dei, O Lamb of God, have mercy upon us. You know what I suspect? Based on what we see in our parable today, I would suspect that God would come running to us, throw His arms around us, kiss us over and over and over again, and cry out to the servants, bring the finest robe, bring the gold ring, bring the shoes, kill the fat calf. I suspect that God would do this for us even before we utter 
the first have mercy. If, if only we would let him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.